I'm Brent Grinna, and welcome to The Raise Podcast. We're talking to innovative advancement leaders who aren't satisfied with the status quo. Fundraising is in flux. Revenue's up, but donor counts are dropping. Phonathons are struggling, and mass marketing isn't moving the needle. And our largest donors are increasingly feeling tapped out and challenging us to identify the next generation of supporters. But advancement isn't going extinct. It's being reinvented. That's why we're introducing the Raise podcast hosted by me, Brent Grenna, CEO of Evertrue. Join us as we push the boundaries to ensure future generations can benefit from access to education. Today we welcome Patrick Lynch, Senior Director of Strategic Engagement and Alumni Relations at the Ohio State University School of Engineering. Patrick is leading the charge to establish leadership level annual giving by weaving together in-person visits with a heavy focus on digital engagement. We discuss the pros and cons of large institutions, how to achieve a 100% participation rate, and why Patrick believes that who makes the ask is far more important than the ask itself. Here we go. Welcome everyone, Brent Grenna coming in live from Evertrue headquarters here in Boston. And I am joined today by our friend, Patrick Lynch, who is the Senior Director of Strategic Engagement and Alumni Relations for the College of Engineering at the Ohio State University. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brent. Pleased to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, that, that title doesn't fit very well on a business card, so I think I got to work on that. It's not too snappy. Uh, we got to come up with an acronym. Case uh, Circuit loves acronyms, so we need to come up with an acronym right. for that. What does that mean? What is a Senior Director of Strategic Engagement and Alumni Relations? Yeah, uh, really good question. And for about four years, I've been trying to figure out the answer to that. And so the best that I can summarize right now is my role is to help connect all the dots uh, for our team within advancement. Uh, so I kind of sit between our major gift fundraisers, our communications team, and all of our outreach and engagement efforts and make sure everyone's talking to, to each other and we're looking for opportunities to engage on a deeper level. Um, you know, in terms of my role specifically, I, I oversee our annual giving, our leadership annual giving, our events engagement, our young alumni and student programming. So kind of your, your bottom layers of the pyramid, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, and when we, uh, we first met, I was just thinking back, we first met at a case conference in Chicago a couple of years ago. And we just connected on the uh, on on the vendor floor, which can be lonely. So thank yeah. you for walking around <laughs> and, and and saying hello. But um, we we sort of connected initially over some of the work that you were doing relating to leadership giving and trying to introduce new kinds of outreach, which which I suspect aligns very much with the strategic engagement reference in your title. Um, but would love to just share a little bit about that initial conversation, where you were then with that program, uh, what you've learned so far. Sure. Uh, so we were probably about four months into our leadership annual giving efforts when we first met. And we were real fortunate that the College of Engineering here at Ohio State saw a need to kind of build our donor base. Uh, our major gift fundraisers focus on gifts of $100,000 and up. Our annual fund, you know, one in $3,000 annual fund donors. But no one was actively helping build the pipeline for us. And the college was willing to invest resources in a leadership annual giving program. And it made a lot of sense to sit uh, on our team where we're currently doing the annual fund efforts as well as general alumni engagement. Uh, so those first few months, we were just trying to figure out how to find the right leads. You know, who were the best individuals to reach out to and what could be 
some creative strategies. And, uh, you know, that opportunity to connect with you was something we were really intrigued with. And, you know, I've been pleased since, since that first meeting. When, when you were building out that program, what was the profile of fundraiser that you were looking for from a, from a leadership giving perspective? Yeah, so it's certainly, you know, or were they starting on the inside? I mean, what was the mix that you had in mind? Uh, so we wanted, you know, since we were fortunate to have two individuals, we actually were looking when we hired to kind of pair them up, right? So we were able to be a little bit creative in the types of individuals uh, that we were looking for. Somebody with some general fundraising experience was important to us and somebody that had a true interest in, in learning and growing in this field. It was an opportunity for me, I thought, to kind of help, help guide them and be a mentor for them along their journey. So we were looking for somebody who had some previous experience, you know, either as a student um, with a nonprofit here in Columbus or across the country, and also somebody who, who wanted to grow. The other thing that was really important, um, this is a, a volume-based position as well, right? There's a lot of, lot of outreach efforts, a lot of phone calls, a lot of emails, and getting a sense for would somebody be comfortable with that or were they, you know, somebody who said, hey, I just kind of want to be on the road all the time or I just want to work on higher level gifts. Um, so those are some of the key things we were looking at. So when you say volume based, what does that mean? Sure. Yeah. So in our leadership annual giving program, uh, we're expecting our gift officers to get you know, near 200 visits, you know, 150 up, 175 ideal face to face visits. Um, and to get that, it, it, it takes a lot of effort, right? And that's not just going to 30 people a handful of times and building that relationship. It's working the phones, it's working email, it's using LinkedIn, it's getting creative. These are probably people who have never, alumni who've never been reached out to before. Um, these aren't warm relationships. They may be donors, but they're not used to getting a phone call. Uh, so somebody who's just comfortable plowing through that list and making, making good outreach efforts. And so really... Up until this point, these folks had been, I'm sure, receiving direct marketing and email and, and maybe phone outreach, phone-a-thon outreach and so forth. But as far as real one-to-one -one relationship building, this is kind of their first taste of that part of, of the advancement cycle. Yeah, absolutely, it was. Yeah, they, they maybe were getting a, a phone call from a student or part of our thank-a-thon initiatives or, or something general, but really hadn't had somebody say, Hey, I, I want to take an interest in you. I'm, I'm intrigued to meet you. I want to know more about you and your philanthropic goals. And that's what this program allows us to do. And so fast forwarding to today, because this is a topic where, I mean, it's interesting how many customers we work with and, and friends in the sector where uh, significant investment going into the top of the pyramid, significant investment going into direct market, bottom of the pyramid, and then a wide open missing middle uh, where there just is not that um, progression in, in a personalized yeah. way to take somebody from a thousand a year to 25 or 50. Um, and so ultimately it's just a, a big area of interest, I think, across the sector right now. What have you learned so yeah. far? Where are you today? What would you do different if you could start over, go back in time a couple of years? Well, I, we learned that it's not as easy as one may think uh, to just kind of build this program. Uh, you know, when we initially looked at it, we were looking at of a base, we thought maybe, you know, almost 10,000 alumni that we were like, these are viable leadership annual giving prospects. And, and I would say our math was probably a little bit off. And what makes a viable leadership annual giving prospect can be some different factors that I don't know we had considered before. Um, that said, 
I wouldn't not do it. Um, the, it's been incredible efforts. Uh, one of the things that we've seen some great synergy with that was kind of unexpected is that linkage between strong annual fund donors, strong leadership annual giving donors, and event attendees. Hmm. And so we, we ensure that we have our leadership annual giving officers at every one of our alumni engagement events uh, to build some relationships there. They certainly got some people they want to connect with going in, but post event reaching out and, you know, seeing if they're open for a meeting, somebody who's willing to show up at an event to take that time, you know, in the evening or during on the weekends to join you, um, you know, even if they're not a donor has some other level of connection. And our leadership annual giving program allows us to explore that connection a little further. I think it's really interesting because it is definitely one of the areas where we are often surprised by, for all the money being spent into engagement events, planning events, um, there often isn't a coordinated outreach strategy. Maybe right. there is for currently assigned prospects by existing major gift officers, but for somebody who just shows up to an event, which is a big sign of engagement, and then goes on with their life the following week, it's, it's very possible in many instances that there'd be no personalized follow-up. It's sort of like in our world, right? We first met at a case conference and then after the case conference, we needed to engage you and continue to get to know you. Sure. Um, and, and so it sort of seems obvious, but for some reason that is not sort of standard practice necessarily in this sector beyond the very top of the pyramid. Why, why do you think that is? Really good observation, Brent, and I think a lot of it has to come with the structure of teams. Uh, quite often, alumni relations, as it's most often called, or alumni engagement, is not directly part of you know any of the fundraising efforts, right? That's a separate team, a separate individual, um, and so I don't know that they often think about those intersections as naturally. Um, so I think that that is probably a big factor in it. Um, and I also think there's a fear sometimes in our profession of asking people who are engagers to give. Uh, there's this hesitation that, you know, you can't do both or, oh, this is an event. I, I, I'm not going to ask them to give at this event because it's an event and events are for engaging and not for fundraising. And, you know, I, I personally don't subscribe to that thought process. And, and I think that's why, again, our, the structure we've built here really aligns everything from, you know, your current students to your recent graduate, annual fund donor, leadership annual giving donor, all on one team, all on one spectrum. It's a lot easier to see the linkage and a lot easier for us to say, hmm, maybe we should start looking at these populations in a little bit different way. Yeah, I mean, we have a, we have a slide in one of our presentations that basically equates marketing to alumni relations and sales to development. And it's amazing how often that, that slide can rub people the right way. I mean, they're definitely a, a good group of folks out there who agree and they just see uh, marketing uh, being about lead generation and nurturing and sales being about closing and, and ongoing relationship management. Yeah. And, and, and I feel like the same thing needs to happen in the sector. It is starting to happen, but there's definitely still some resistance depending on historical structure and culture norms. Yeah. Um, all right, well, look, we just dove into that. I mean, as you think about the current operation, if I were a, um, so if I were applying to be a leadership uh, annual giving officer on your team today, my objectives would be 200 visits per year through some kind of qualified pool, a lot of digital outreach, online outreach, married with uh, the field work. 
And, and are there any other key metrics that you've uh, sort of identified or been able to shape as you've got more data um, over the last couple of years? Yes, we've got, we've got a couple other things that we're focusing on. I think that, that commitment number, so number of commitments, how many gifts we're closing and the amounts is something that we're, we're tracking. So we're looking at, you know, commitments starting at $1,000 or more. Um, and then we've got additional metrics on top of that for how many at 3000 um, And that's just a way to also validate some of the effort that the gift officers are putting in. Um, while not a formal metric in the system, I can tell you each of our gift officers have metrics around kinds of gifts. So planned gifts, you know, being able to, to have those kind of conversations, as well as collaborative gifts, working with other members of our team and across the university on closing gifts. But the key primaries are, you know, number of visits and two would, 200 would be incredible. Our current number, our goal is, is a little bit below that um, number of commitments. And we have a dollar goal, right? You know, at the end of the day, we hope we're raising a certain dollar amount within our leadership annual giving program. So what is that per, per officer at this point ballpark? Uh, so our goals per gift officer, I think are 150,000 uh, total in new fundraising activity uh, for the year. Uh, both of our gift officers in that program have far exceeded that number. And I think as a whole, our leadership annual giving program is over half a million dollars raised this fiscal year. And so it's sort of like, it, it, it almost sounds like, let's try to roughly, let's just call it, you know, break even or, or, or do a little bit better than break even on this program, but ultimately established hundreds of new relationships with people who otherwise it might be decades or, or at least years before they would surface on a true major gift radar. And so I would imagine another longer term metric for a program like this will be around pipeline creation or referrals up to major gifts over time. Any really neat examples of discovery, uh, sort of diamonds in the rough that you or your colleagues have uncovered doing this work? You're absolutely right on your assumption. You know, I think that pipe, filling the pipeline and transitioning up, uh, those are certainly things that we want to come out of the program. And we've had a couple of unique successes where a, a major gift officer may have met with somebody and wasn't sure where they fat, fell and brought in a leadership annual giving officer and that turned into a $100,000 estate gift. Um, we've had a couple other where a leadership annual giving officer has just done a discovery visit and heard, heard one or two things that, ooh, let me bring in my colleague on this end and that turned into um, you know, $100,000 scholarship. So we've seen a couple of those. Uh, but what I will also say is one of the additional goals, I think, uh, is pipeline development of these prospects, as well as the leadership annual giving fundraisers. Mm -hmm. If we do our job right, they can carry a portfolio for a few years of prospects that hopefully they can continue to stay with as they go to the major gift side, if they are interested, and grow them along, you know, grow their portfolio along with their own career. That would be the ideal, right? So that Three years from now, you don't spend, you don't say, hey, Patrick, it was great working with you, but now I got to transition you over to Brent because you're ready to make a major gift and I'm not at that level. I mean, in, in this business that we operate in, those relationships are so key. And so our goal is not to just transition these portfolios to person to person. That's, that's really interesting. So even as they get promoted, I mean, and that's definitely a, a critique we've heard uh, or a frustration sometimes from frontline folks is you get promoted and then your whole portfolio turns over, uh, which is sort of jarring to you, jarring to the, to the prospects and, and, and donors as well. 
Um, well, look, that's a good recap. We wanted to kind of get up to speed on, on where you were with that leadership annual giving program because we are asked about uh, programs like that uh, all the time. And so uh, appreciate you sharing with that. Let's rewind a little bit and talk about your career path, how you got to the position that you're at today. Uh, and we've got a mix of guests on this show from folks who've been in the sector for 30 or 40 years to uh, people who are just getting started. And, and you're sort of somewhere in between in this uh, 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 phase of your career. And so we'd love to kind of uh, hear about your journey, including uh, your stop uh, at an MBA program along the way, which is which is not all that common uh, for, for the fundraising world. And, um, and, and so why don't you just share a little bit about your background and, and perspective that got you to, to the position at Ohio State? Uh, happy to, Brent. Uh, I, I think like many who end up in the profession, it's, it's not something I thought I would do. I graduated from Miami University in Oxford, Ohio with a marketing degree and, and thought I would end up in, in sales and just could never find something I believed in enough to sell. Um, and that's really kind of been at the core of, of my journey. Uh, I spent uh, the first couple years working for a for-profit company down in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I actually was running a mulch manufacturing plant. So I was uh, helping make topsoil and, and pine bark mulch. This is mulch probably and, like the peak month for mulch sales. So you must have been really rocking back in, in April, May uh, down in Charlotte. Uh, we, it was, this, is, this was heavy duty uh, production season right now. We were, we were bagging a lot, of, a lot of pine bark mini nuggets right about now. When I, Saturday, so I didn't realize we were going to go there. But uh, okay, so... <laughs> So I can't wait to hear what's transferable about mall sales to advancement. Well, that, I don't know. I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you know when I figure it out. But it, it's all about relationships. And so I, that, that's when I really kind of felt like, wow, I enjoyed the job. I had some history in, in the industry. It, it wasn't what I wanted to do long term because I needed to come home and, and feel a strong pride for what I was doing. And that's really the pivot in my career to education. Uh, I spent the next few years working at a startup charter school called KIPP, Knowledge is Power Program. It's a national network, and we were founding one in Charlotte, and I took over as their operations director, so some transferable skills when I was the operations director at the mulch facility. And that's when I learned about development. We had a development officer there, and I would help her out, you know, giving tours of the school, meeting with companies. You know, I knew all the ins and outs of the school, and one day I remember just asking her, you know, what are we doing? What, what is this called? And she said, this is fundraising. And I said, wow, I want to do this. Um, and that just started my journey. I, I moved to another charter school after that as their founding development director. I learned a little bit about the annual fund and the capital campaign at the same time. We were building both of those programs. And then I was fortunate enough to have an opportunity to help build a young alumni giving program at Queens University of Charlotte. Uh, they used to say they're a hidden secret in, in Charlotte and they don't want to be a hidden secret anymore. And so I spent a few years at Queens kind of helping build the annual fund uh, work there is focusing on our young alumni. And during that time, I uh, was given a, a promotion and an opportunity to lead the development efforts for the business school at Queens, the McCall School of Business. And at the same point thought, well, I should probably get my MBA from the McCall School of Business while I'm here. So, so I did that. And it was a great way for me to connect and relate to the alumni base that I was you know, supporting, that I was working with. I knew the faculty, um, probably knew a little too much about certain things, right? I had to be mindful of that, but that was a wonderful opportunity. 
for me and spent almost 10 years collectively in Charlotte. So, so you're at that time leading business school fundraising while getting your MBA at the business school. Correct. So you're like a, a mole, basically. You had unprecedented access to, uh, on both sides, uh, what was really going on behind the scenes. I think there was probably a secret plan along the way for this to happen that no one shared with me. But yeah, I ended up, I was a plant, right? I was at the, at the alumni board meetings as a, as, a, as a student, wearing my student hat as well as my fundraiser hat. I had the faculty here at faculty meetings. So really unique perspective. It made some of my classes difficult. I will be honest with you there, right? There were, uh, I knew a little too much for some of the faculty, right? Or I didn't fundraise enough for certain faculty. Maybe they held that against me, but uh, no, it's, uh, it was a great experience for me and, and really glad I, I did it. I, I reflect back on that time and I loved going through that MBA program. It was something I didn't have to do, but wanted to learn. I had that thirst for, for knowledge and uh, again, working there and fundraising for that program was, was a great opportunity. So would it be something you recommend? I mean, when you think about the business of advancement and where you are, uh, obviously there are different uh, both degree paths and, and, and ongoing curriculum paths that people can take from all walks of life to, to succeed in the sector. But what's your pitch for the MBA as it relates to, um, to the business of advancement, whether it's at McCall specifically, uh, at Queens or, or elsewhere? Uh, my, my pitch for anyone who's considering an MBA would be a, that you have to have that thirst for knowledge. Um, I have always felt if you go through it for the wrong reasons, you're not going to get out of it what, what you're hoping to. But anyone who aspires to lead an organization or lead people, um, whether it's an MBA program or a master's in organizational development or even a coaching certificate, I would strongly encourage that. Um, but anyone who says, I need the credential, I'm not going to be a VP or a CAO or a chief, whatever, without this, then I think you're going through it for the wrong reason. And, and I really believe that. It's, it's not easy to go through an MBA program or any sort of master's program, whether you're working or not. And so you've got to be doing it for the right reasons and not because you think you have to do it in order to take that next step. So that would be... That would be would be my thoughts. Um, and then just to round, round it out, because people often ask, uh, so why did you leave Charlotte, North Carolina for beautiful Columbus, Ohio? Another question I ask myself on a frequent basis, but my wife and I had a, a six month old at the time and we have family in Northeast Ohio and we thought it was just time to, to transition. And as I was looking for opportunities, knowing I wanted to stay in the higher education advancement space, uh, Columbus was a great opportunity because of the wealth of higher education institutions. We had a phone call and, and funny story, I actually remember reading the job description and saying, I don't want to do this. And then having a phone call with the individual who would be my boss who later hired me and saying, but I want to work for that guy. Uh, and so I think, you know, I was, I was fortunate enough to be right place, right time. And somebody thought of me and gave me an opportunity. And, you know, a lot has transpired in the last four plus years here at Ohio State in engineering, but it's been a wonderful ride. Okay, so who is it that hired you? A gentleman's name is Matt McNair, who, who brought me on board a little over four years ago. What was it about meeting Matt where, where you really just felt that, uh, that connection? Because ultimately recruiting great people is the most important and most challenging part of, of your business and, and mine. 
Um, and and I, and I guess I'm curious to know why you felt inspired or, or really connected to Matt's vision, uh, even though the job description at, at first blush didn't look like it was the right fit. I could tell right off the bat that Matt was somebody who would give you the support and the resources to be successful. He made that loud and clear in the interview process. And it was also great to feel wanted uh, and valued by an individual. And he said a couple things I remember on the call about my background that were appealing or interesting, or we need that. That would be, that. that's what we're looking for. Um, and I think, you know, as somebody who's looking to transition, those are the kind of things you want to hear. Um, but, but ultimately it really boiled down to, I truly felt like I was, I was going to be supported in my efforts and not just for the role itself, but long-term uh, that Matt seemed like somebody who was going to invest in me and my, my career. And to be able to have that come through in a 30 minute intro phone call is, is not easy to do. So I give him a lot of credit. I mean, it's really interesting though, when you think about, you know, being a founding development director at, at an organization like Kip, which is incredibly entrepreneurial, and then to be the first person at a, at a site to start the fundraising process has to be about as entrepreneurial of a context that you could be in, in, in the advancement or fundraising sector. And then, um, you know, moving all the way up the spectrum to one of, you know, the largest, most well-established um, professional advancement organizations in, in the world at Ohio State um, has to be, I mean, it's interesting that, that you have been able to thrive in, in so many different contexts, um, small organizations, medium, uh, and, and very large. I'm, cu I'm curious to get your take on sort of the pros and cons of, of the various um, organizations you've been with. Uh, wonderful question and, and good observation. And, and I've always been somebody, Brent, who is attracted to these entrepreneurial type roles. I think they allow you to grow at a rapid pace and learn a lot about yourself, what you enjoy to do, what you don't enjoy doing as, as much, um, and also give you flexibility and freedom to build and create. So actually, as I reflect back, even from that first job at the mulch plant, every single position, including the one I have today, had some sort of entrepreneurial spirit or, or startup. The role I have today at Ohio State, uh, somebody was in it for a few months and then transitioned out and it sat vacant for almost a year. And so I think, it, again, Matt was maybe looking for somebody who, you know, had that kind of passion, that background to, to build something and create something. And that's always been interesting to me. Um, but to your question of how does somebody thrive in these different types of environments, you really have to understand yourself and, and be authentic and know your skill sets and what you need to be successful. That That is transferable no matter the organization. And it's really important to understand who your manager is. And uh, I don't think I understood how important who your supervisor was for your career um, and and the relationship that you have with that supervisor. So for me personally, that's been a key factor as I've continued to grow and evolve in my career is who am I going to be working for, you know, directly and, and who is leading this entire organization and do I align with their visions and do I see them as somebody who's supporting me? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm sure people meet you all the time and you tell them you work at Ohio State and they see the red, they see the logo, uh, and, and they just think about Ohio State, but it's, it's really you work with and for Matt, right? And it's kind of like, who is that, you know, who are the people behind the brand that really make it 
it work or not for somebody who's trying to grow their career? Yeah, it's, um, it, it really is about who, you know, it's, it's bigger than just the name on the business card, I guess I, I will say. And that's been the case at every one of my organizations. I will tell you a quick funny story uh, about Matt. So I, I started here in February 2015, um, about a month after the Buckeyes won the inaugural college football playoff. And so I told Matt that was part of my deal. If they lost, I wasn't going to come. Uh, so, so they won. And then I think six months or so after I started in February, Matt took a new role at the university. And so that, that, so, but again, thinking about that situation, I mean, that was difficult for me. Um, You know, as I already explained that a large reason of why I came to Ohio state was to work for Matt. But even in that short period of time, he helped me, you know, build that confidence. He gave me that support. He gave me the resources and, when he transitioned to a new role at the university, he was still there to help and support me. Um, but that really struck me as, wow, I, after all this, I, this is where I was coming to be a part of your organization. Um, and then something changes, which just, you know, again, you, you can never predict that, but it, it's still, it's an important factor to make sure you know who you're working for and who you'll be working with. And so, and is that a right fit for you? And I'm still here. So I think things have worked out. That's great. Is it true you once achieved 100% participation in one of the campaigns you're involved with? Uh, that is true, Brent. Uh, while, we were, uh, while I was at the McCall School of Business, we were looking for a way to engage our executive MBA program students. Uh, so like a lot of business schools, we had our professional MBA program and then our executive MBA program. And those were students and soon-to-be alums that we wanted to get connected with. And so during uh, maybe my second year or first year there, we started this senior class gift, if you will, for the executive MBA program. How and, many uh, executive we had... MBAs like being called seniors? Is that really how it goes? Or... <laughs> well, no, they senior executive MBA okay. class right. gift. Maybe, maybe there we go. Um, but we, you know, we took the similar concepts that you would with a typical senior class gift, right? Striving for participation. We had some challenge goals, but... I was fortunate uh, to find somebody in that class who believed in philanthropy as much as I did and the organization did and was willing to kind of put a match out there for her classmates. And uh, yeah, we ended up achieving 100% participation from that class. I will, I will say it wasn't as easy as, as we had hoped it would be. And we did some shaming a few individuals. But the other thing that we were trying to do was establish a culture and a tradition. And it was really important for people to understand it wasn't just hitting the 100%. It was a way to say, we believe this is valuable. We believe this program, this experience is valuable, so valuable that we want to commit our resources back to it. And as part of that, we had a plaque created, 100% participation in the executive MBA program. And that first class who helped start that, you know, they were the first plaque or the first nameplate on that plaque. And, you know, now talk about a culture and a tradition. You don't want to be the class who's not on that, right? You know, you don't want to be the one who, who lets things slip. And so I was really proud of being able to get that up and running and reminds me I should check in with my colleagues to see how things are progressing since then. So you were a student and running the program at that time. How many people were in the exec MBA group roughly? Uh, there were, I think, 25 to 30 in the executive MBA. And so I had a little distance. I was doing the professional MBA 
program. So I didn't take courses uh, with these individuals. Got it. So it's not like you were just uh, cajoling your friends to, to get on board. These, this was a different group. So when you think about, um, you know, look, a 25-person prospect pool at 100%, that's impressive. I mean, it's 25 people, but it's still to get 100% is 100%. What do you think uh, is transferable about that when you when you think about scaling it up to, to larger uh, challenges? It's a good good question. I think you've got to have different is this about more public shaming, or is there is there uh, anything else? So get their addresses, knock on their door, uh, be be a pest to them. Uh, I think one thing that was successful for us with that program and that initiative was we had an ask amount, right? You know, we hope you will give at this level, our leadership level. Um, and after a few weeks or a few months when we realized not everyone was comfortable with that level, it was then, okay, having follow-up visits and reshaping that, right? Okay, well, if it's not this level, what is comfortable for you? Uh, what What is meaningful? Why would or wouldn't you give it? Um, and so, while 25 is big, it's still a number where you can make some personal relationships. So not only was I coming into their class to speak and talking with them, I was meeting with them outside of class, right? I was, you know, getting to know who they were. I was having visits just like you would have a, a donor visit nowadays. I was doing that with these current students to understand them a little bit more as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and ultimately, it sounds like there were more than a handful who were on the fence but it was really that personal touch that was able to get them yeah. over the finish line. Absolutely. And I will also say it's who the asker is, is important in our business. Uh, it's great when people feel a connection to me personally or one of our fundraisers, but we're not always the right person to ask. And so I alluded to at the beginning that there was somebody else in the class who believed in this idea of philanthropy and offered a challenge. And she took a lot of onus on herself to reach out to people and say, Hey, you know, Luis, have you made your gift yet? You know, if not, what can I share with you? I, I, I really want to make this match or here's why, why I, I did it. And so this individual was more than happy to go and talk to her classmates, not just on our behalf, but personally, because she really believed in that. And I think I've seen that message hold true for the entirety of my career, that the, the asker is just almost as important, if not more important than the ask amount and how you ask. All right, so now you're making me wonder if every advancement shop in the country should hire students in each of the different classes as actual employees of the advancement organization. So they can be moles, just like you were. Um, but in all seriousness, would that professionalize a senior class ask campaign, for example, which today is, is sort of totally voluntary. It's sort of you know, trying to find the right kids and, and get them uh, involved uh, and, but ultimately it's kind of hurting cats. I mean, when you think about the merits of potentially paying somebody to do that work, authentically being connected to the class, believing in the mission, would that have merit relative to trying to, you know, wrangle committees? Yeah, your, your concept, I think, makes a lot of sense, even though, you know, I don't know what feasibility, right, of, of doing that. But it's it, it, to the person, if you're part of it, right, if you live and breathe it, it's just a different experience. If you can saddle up to somebody and say, remember that I, I was sitting next to you, um, that made a that makes a big difference. So while we can't probably hire, you know, seniors in, in, in every area to lead these efforts, what we can do is a better job of educating them 
on why and, and being partners for them and helping give them resources. You know, often we say, who's the class president or who's the leader? And we tell them to do this. As part of being a leader and the 87 other things you do, you are also now going to lead this class gift. Go right. tell your friends to make a gift, right? And then in, I guess in theory, it makes sense. But really, is that the right thing to do? I mean, how does that help and enable them? So I think there's got to be a better integration and a better way to go about that effort. Yeah, I mean, it makes me wonder if there are, if there are, are students, for example, who are aspiring to get into marketing and sales, or maybe they're aspiring to get into philanthropy. If you said, hey, we'll pay you, you know, 15 bucks an hour for 10 hours a week to lead your senior class campaign, and you're really going to run it like a, a small sales organization, could that achieve better outcomes for the institution and support that, that culture of philanthropy, but also provide more of a, a skill set, if you will, um, to, to the, the student? I don't know. We're just spitballing here, but I was on my senior class uh, campaign and and uh, I can say unequivocally that, <laughs> that I probably would have been a better fundraiser if, if, uh, if I were doing that as my part-time job instead of uh, working the front desk at the athletic center or whatever I was doing, so. Makes complete sense. Um, cool. Well, look, we want to, um, one of the things that, that we like about these conversations is we get to give people a window into your world. And, um, you know, one of the really uh, inherent aspects of working in the business of advancement is travel, being on the road. Uh, would love to know if you have any favorite stories or, or destinations that stand out um, or, or uh, uh, you know, crazy donor stories, whatever, whatever you're comfortable sharing. Yeah, I would be happy to, to share some. It's interesting here at Ohio State in the last four years, I've, I've traveled more than I think I've traveled collectively in all my roles previously. So we, we have great opportunities here, what I'm finding though is we're going going to the same places and getting pretty comfortable at the same hotels, um, eating at the same places. Uh, so I need to branch out a little bit more. But I I will say I am not good at traveling. Um, uh, anyone who travels with me will also attest to that. You know, some of the the consultants, I'm sure some somebody like yourself, you you've got the system, right? You've got the the travel kit. You got the toiletries here, the pre-check. You've got you know you fold your shirts a certain way. I'm just bad at it. I'm right now, but yeah, keep like it. So I'm bad at it. So some of my favorite uh, experiences tend to tend to happen on the road. Uh, one that happened early on is I you know, got got off the plane. You know, looking at my phone, go right to my rental car place. Um, you know, we, we tend to use a certain provider. We tend to use National. And so you know, National, you just kind of get in the car uh, and you go and you check out and get in the car I'm driving out hand my ID and it's taken forever and they're like you know Mr. Lynch we've been trying to figure out what's wrong with your reservation you're you didn't get a car from National you're with Enterprise right you are literally at the wrong location you just didn't look at your reservation so I've had that happen have had that happen a few times I went to the wrong gate for the wrong airline because you get comfortable flying southwest but you're booked on Delta and so I'm waiting for at the Charlotte or wherever I'm going terminal and go into the, to the wrong place. The, the biggest thing that if you ask anybody on my team, I have the worst cell phone in the world and it dies all the time. And everyone just says, you know, get, get the new battery, get a new phone. Um, and so my phone dies while I travel all the time. 
And I cannot tell you how many times I've been on my phone, using the maps, heading to a location, and my phone dies. And I literally am in the middle of Houston and have no idea where I'm supposed to go until I can find a way to charge my phone, you know, do, do this and that, uh, and, and figure it out. So that one probably happens more than anything else. We might just be willing to consider a crowdfunding campaign. Hashtag get Patrick a new phone. I feel like, <laughs> I feel like your team alone might be able to help uh, make that happen. So I'm not gonna press you on why you don't just get a new phone, okay? I'm not gonna go there. It sounds like others have, but um, but you need to think about that, all right? You need to think. I was, I, I was gifted a portable phone charger by one of my colleagues for Christmas. And uh, along with the note said, if, if you're not gonna get a new phone, maybe you will use this. And I can't tell you how many times I have forgot to charge that while, while traveling. So right. I'm working on it, Brent. I'm working on it. We're, We're going to send there. you a charger for your charger as, as a follow-up <laughs> to, to this podcast. Um, yeah. uh, but, but let me just say, I will say uh, traveling is enjoyable. Uh, it, is, it is a fun thing to do. But for anyone who says, I want to be a fundraiser or a consultant or anything so I can travel, uh, that is not the reason to get into it as, as fun as it enjoyable as it can be to go out to Seattle and have some downtime and explore the city. Um, life on the road is difficult, right? You start your mornings with an eight. At some point it all starts to glaze over and national becomes enterprise and Delta becomes <laughs> Southwest and you don't know what day it is. And uh, no, that's, that's all good. Um, well, look, we, we, uh, we want to, you know, keep going here and, would kind of love your perspective stepping back a little bit just when you think about the world of advancement you know you, you've worked in entrepreneurial settings you, you've been entrepreneurial even at larger um, institutions but but you often don't equate the word entrepreneurship and, and advancement I mean you know often we're talking about one of the most long-standing traditional sectors in, in the world frankly um, it, it can be hard to, to affect change to, to make things happen um, but when you think about areas where advancement organizations, not necessarily Ohio State, but maybe Ohio State included, um, are over-investing uh, in ways that just don't probably generate as much of a return on investment as, as you'd hope. And then other areas where you feel like are just really untapped, areas that, that there's real underinvestment in. What stands out as an area of, of maybe over-investment if we start there? Uh, that's that's a really good question, and I I think right now we we might be over investing in some of our volunteer based efforts. Um, and what I mean by that is the the volunteer efforts that are not closely tied to back to the organization, right? Things that we let happen ad hoc or or organically, um, you know, that might might be volunteer uh, organizations that are remote, regionally based or where we just kind of empower people on their own to kind of say, hey, you guys, you know, go have fun with it. Um, and, and why I think that is because if there's no kind of goal or outcome or, or driving factor or things that they're trying to achieve, do those efforts that are making great strides translate into anything back to the university if you're not capturing that information or understanding what's happening? So as long as volunteer efforts, you know, have strong legs and ties back to the institution, I think that could be, you know, that it works great. 
but, but there are a lot of things that just happen organically with no ties back to the institution that institutions often encourage. And I think that's probably a miss or an, an overinvestment. Uh, the other thing I might say is alumni relations as its own entity, and maybe I'm biased because of my role here at Ohio State, um, we can't keep investing in it as a standalone. It needs to be invested as an integrated part of the overall strategy. And, and I actually am not a huge fan of the phrase alumni relations or even alumni engagement. Um, I like to think of it more as outreach and engagement or constituent engagement or a term we've been using a lot is constituent experiences, right? Um, what is it we're trying to get them to feel? What is that experience we want them to have? How do we want them to be connected? And it's not just alumni. Um, it's, it's students, it's friends, it's parents, it's corporations. It's, you know, a grateful patient, you know, what is it? So, so I would say, you know, those are two areas where I think maybe need to be reevaluated and uh, funds may be reallocated. In, in terms of underinvestment in our industry, uh, there's two things that stand out to me. One is talent development. Um, and if that means more HR staff or training or, or whatever it is, um, we have to work as an industry in talent development. Um, this game of as you continue to grow, you hop from university to university is not a sustaining model. It's, it's not going to work. In the example we talked about earlier with the leadership annual giving officer growing up to major gifts, if you don't have a way to transition that internally, that's an issue. Um, even here at, at Ohio State, we have people who are a, an associate development officer and go to a new college to be a development officer and then a new college to be a senior development officer. And I understand when there's limitations in that organization from a funding standpoint or others, and maybe it's right to make some of the shifts. And so I'm not critiquing that, but how can we as an organization, how can we as a profession retain our top talent? Because our business is about relationships. And if our donors have to make new relationships every three years, we're, we're not helping ourselves. So talent development. And the second thing I would say is we've got to leverage technology better in our, in our field. We are, we are laggers in this, in this area. Um, with the way you can capture data and who's, who's interacting with what. If we don't spend time figuring out how to put dear Mr. Lynch or know that I like to be called Patrick or Pat on an email, like what are we doing, right? If we can't reference this, the last fund I gave to with the gift date and the solicitation, wh what are we doing? Why not, right? And so we have to be, those should be standards in what we do. And so we've got to invest in the, technology and the infrastructure to make these things possible. And that's got to probably uh, be particularly acute for you and your colleagues because you're representing the engineering school. I'm sure many of the donors and prospects you're building relationships with are, are truly on the cutting edge. And so you probably see that contrast maybe even more clearly than, than some of your colleagues. Uh, absolutely. I've been out to San Francisco in the Bay Area more times actually than any other place you know in the country to visit our alums and i'll come out there with something i'm really excited about look at we're doing this and their response is it's about time like yeah you should be right and and here i am saying like aren't we great give us kudos and they're like you know yes this is the standard what took you so long and i built that as a freshman right like <laughs> and so yeah i agree with you 100 percent. yeah cool um couple other things. I mean, when you think about 
making the case for Ohio State uh, and for engineering there in particular, what's the pitch? You're making it all the time. So this is your chance, whether it's um, uh, from a philanthropic perspective or e even as you think about why people might want to consider, you know, checking out the career site at Ohio State or, or within your organization right now. Uh, if you now? think about, if you think about almost anything you do in your daily routine, it is impacted or was built by somebody, you know, with an engineering background. Um, and that includes uh, planners and architects and all the varying you know, disciplines within engineering. But think about the next time you drive over a bridge. Uh, think about the thought that it took to design that bridge so that 50,000 cars or a million cars later, the bridge doesn't collapse. And so when I think about, you know, engineering and what is excited about me, it's not just, you know, the fundamentals is that like we impact life and society and we in ways that I don't even think we, we realize are going to be possible. Uh, you know, we've got people, we've got alums that are out there working, you know, at all the automotive companies who are, you know, working on autonomous vehicles and who are at SpaceX and Blue Origin and doing incredible things there. Um, you know, so it's just really. Any at Zoom? Because they're having a good week. Yeah. <laughs> Um, not, not that I know, but I'm sure we've got a few. Uh, we've got over 65,000 College of Engineering yeah. alumni worldwide. So, um, but, but I think, you know, when, you think, when I think about what makes me excited, I see the students and what they're building and creating and a place to be innovative and shape the future. I mean, that's what makes me excited about the work that we do. And that's what keeps me, you know, committed to this profession. How do you feel about that relative to so many of the headlines that we're seeing in higher ed, which unfortunately aren't all positive, right? Whether it's student loan crisis or, or some of the other um, ethical considerations recently, how do you sort of, uh, or, or even frankly, the, the organizations that are out there trying to disrupt higher ed? I mean, I'm sure you're keeping your finger to the pulse of, of a lot of that work as well, yet you still feel such commitment and passion for the business of higher education. How, how do you reconcile that? Well, for me, I, I always have to stay true to why I got into it. And it was to make a difference in education because I truly believe that um, with, with a strong educational foundation, um, people can accomplish anything. And so whether that, you know, wherever you decide to stop your educational dreams um, is, is okay, but I don't want I want to make sure that you have opportunities if you want to continue to pursue those. And so that's really kind of what got me into this industry. But what, what, what I think we as fundraising professionals within higher education need to do is be willing to change. Um, it, in my career and in that entrepreneurial spirit and you know, those that I've enjoyed working with are willing to change. If we continue to think that alumni will give back be, just because they got a degree from your institution and there's this innate sense of Yep, I have my degree. I should give you money. Um, in I mean, in in five years, <laughs> that that won't work, right? Let alone thirty years. So, as an as an institution, as a profession, we we have to be willing to change and and adapt. Um, there there are concerns out there, right? If what you know, if student loan debt continues to rise and there isn't things done to kind of help that, will I think? students will continue to give back to scholarships when they didn't have enough money to go to school. I don't know. That's a hard ask, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, our, our current students that are graduating with near $30,000 in debt, 
Are they going to realize that they got $2,000 in scholarship and want to give back? Is that going to be as appealing? Um, I don't know. That is something we have to be mindful of. And this is really important that we keep an eye on it. If, if college and higher education becomes free, what happens of the millions and billions of dollars in scholarship endowments? Um, what does that mean? I mean, so there are a lot of unanswered questions out there. And I think we have to be ready to change and be prepared to adapt. And those organizations that are trying to disrupt this space in a positive to get us to think differently, I welcome those conversations because we need to be thinking a little bit differently about what the work that we do. That's a great perspective. I think it, it makes me think a little bit about um, one of our other interactions, which is at our annual RAISE conference. And so we might um, uh, touch on that for a moment, but then, and, and then conclude. Um, we, we have this conference every year, and, and I think that uh, our marketing around it has been a little bit different. Basically, how do we bring together uh, innovators from the for-profit world and from the higher ed advancement world, put them together in a room and sort of try to you know, share lessons both ways. And, and, and so I'm curious to get your perspective on that. We're, we're ramping up for race 2019 this September, have an amazing group of speakers teed up, um, at least from our perspective. But what was sort of your take on that? Uh, we obviously first met at a case conference and then we caught up at Ray's last year, just sort of your, it, it, I mean, if you were uh, helping us make the case to, to your peers in the sector about why they might consider Ray's, what, what stands out? Uh, if somebody likes a typical case or higher ed conference, I don't think they would <laughs> would be a good guest at Ray's. I mean, I had a blast. It was a great time. Uh, you, you made me get out of my seat. You made me take out my phone and record a video of myself. And, uh, I can't believe you made me... <laughs> your phone was charged well enough to even be able to do that. But uh... I, I think it died halfway through my video. Um, but but I, what I think was interesting about it is, and, you know, and I consider myself somebody who, you know, is, is really engaged and connected in, in this industry. I remember looking at the slate of speakers and thinking, what, what are we going to learn from Puma? Like, really? Like, yes, they, they shoes and they basket their basketball shoes, great marketing efforts. Like, cool. Like, what are we going to learn from them? Um, and I think rent the runway also was, a, was a speaker. And it's like, oh, how, how does this relevant? And, and what I realized was, oh, we have to think about things differently. I mean, that's really what the conference made me do. And I came back so, so jazzed up and energized um, about it because it was different. And as long as you're getting people to think differently and be open to new conversations, um, that's what it's all about. And by no means did I feel like it was anything other than a conference that tried to open people's eyes and perspectives to how to do the work we do better, more efficient, and to make a bigger impact. And I appreciate that. I think so much of our, our belief is that uh, we can learn from other sectors, right? Always be learning. And, and I believe that if you're selling Puma shoes or rent the runway dresses or mulch or, or the business of, uh, you know, the mission right. of the Ohio State Engineering School, there are transferable skills and approaches that we can apply about creating a good story spreading it effectively, leveraging digital as well as we can, analyzing who responds positively to those campaigns, qualifying those folks, and then making sure that there is some kind of personalized follow-up. And, and I think that is why we've enjoyed getting multiple perspectives, because this isn't just the higher ed echo chamber. This is whether it's shoes, mulch, dresses, 
yeah. or your mission, we think it can be, be uh, applied in many similar ways. Uh, you agree. Absolutely. So it was a great, a great conference to be part of. I look forward to bringing the team and more individuals back up to it uh, this, this fall. So, you know, kudos to you all for what you're trying to do. All right, cool. Let us know if you have any good uh, speaker recommendations. And on that, I guess if you have any closing thoughts, anything you wanted to, to, to share, uh, we're coming up on time, but, but really appreciate uh, everything you've shared with us thus far. Yeah, I, I appreciate the opportunity. So thank you, Brent, and to the entire Evertrue team for uh, reaching out and for giving me a chance to have this conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, the one thing as I was thinking about our conversation that I wanted to, to end with is just this idea of, you know, if I could wave a magic wand and uh, maybe change anything about our industry uh, as a whole, um, I really think that we just, we have to be willing to change um, our, our perspective. Um, and the expectations we have of alumni are changing, right? And if we continue to think about them the same way and expect them to act the same way they did 30 years ago, we're, we're going to be in trouble, right? And if we continue to wait 30 years for, to engage people and when they, you know, get that new job and we get notified that they're now a CEO and, uh, you know, it, we're not going to be, we're not going to be successful as an industry. Um, people want to make gifts and give back because it's meaningful to them. And we need to find those opportunities that align with our alumni, with our donors' interest as an industry and encourage them to support those. Um, and, and the results and the outcomes, I think, will be much more fulfilling. So to my peers out there, I just, I hope they continue to keep an open mind to, to, to look at how they perceive their donors and be willing to potentially change some of their perspective on, on our industry and their tactics. Words to live by. Thank you. Patrick Lynch, Senior Director of Strategic Engagement and Alumni Relations for the College of Engineering at the Ohio State University. That's all for today's episode. Signing off from Evertrue HQ. Thanks.